All right. I'm not sure when, when Mike came up and, and asked us to. Thank you, brother. Okay, good. I got two of these. The Lord must be telling me something. You need to do this twice. When Mike came up and talked about just confessing to the Lord, I was really, I didn't realize how much I needed that. I needed to confess that I'm just offended. I thought Thor was trash and I was, I'm offended. It's been one of my favorite of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I brought it to the Lord, so. Somewhere out there, somebody is really having to do that. It wasn't, it was not the best Thor movie, that's for sure. All right. You know what's interesting about books like Romans? We're still in Romans. I don't know why you're laughing. Y'all preach through Romans and tell me how quickly y'all do it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he did Romans in like, what, 12 years? John Piper said something like that, either 7 or 17. We making good time. So what's interesting about a book like Romans is you get to a point in the book where you read it and you feel like, what does this have to do with us at this point? So at this stage of the book in Romans 15, Paul is winding down his argument. So it's really less instruction and more construction. So he's sort of building them up. And you read this and you think, well, this is Paul basically saying goodbye. This is stuff about his life. This is the way that he's processing things. And so as I was reading this section of Scripture, this is where, as a teacher or preacher, that, it, that this is where it becomes fun, sort of. Because you, you want to teach in such a way that people who are listening feel like there's something in it for me. Oftentimes, when we, often we avoid reading parts of the Bible because it doesn't feel like I understand what's happening. When's the last time any of you read Zephaniah? Right. In your Bible reading plan two years ago, you breeze through it, right? It's difficult to know how do you take that and apply these things. And so when you come to a section Beginning in Romans 15, verses 14 on down, you realize, okay, Paul is writing a personal letter to these people, and he's saying goodbye to them, but this isn't about us necessarily, but is there something for us? And because it's God's word, I believe so. I believe so. So may the Lord give me grace to present something better than Disney did Thor this morning. Beginning in verse 14 of Romans 15. We're going to see less instruction, less do's and don'ts, and more construction. This is what Paul's doing. He's building. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 14. We'll read through 21. Stop there and then pick up in a minute. He says this, and I quote. I'm reading from the CSB translation. He says, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, 
filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I've written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God, for I would dare, I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. So we'll pause there. So as you can see, Paul is describing to the church in Rome and obviously to all of the churches. This was real, real experience. He's winding down his letter, and it's a major theme for Paul to build up the church. That's his goal, to build up the church in confidence. That's always what he aims to do. But Paul, the way he sees it, it's confident in dependence on God, not confident independence from God. So he builds up confidence in dependence on God, not confident independence from God. This is what he tries to do. It's kind of a conclusive construction. He's wrapping up his letter, but he wants to build the church together. This is how Paul does a lot of his letters, but particularly Romans, he bookends it with Let me build them up at the beginning, and let me build them up in the ending. At the beginning of Romans, remember this, Paul says this. Remember we did the beginning, we did Romans 1 like 12 years ago. Paul said this in verses 1 through, through 7, beginning in Romans 1, he said this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul's introduction. This church doesn't know him. There are people in the church that know Paul, which you'll see in Romans 16. But as a church, they don't know him. So Paul begins his introduction explaining that he's writing on behalf of God and appointed by Jesus. He starts with, let me tell you who I am and what I'm doing so you know why I'm writing you. He starts his letter off making sure I want to build your confidence, independence on God. Now, if you were here, Romans 1, we saw something that was really amazing. As Paul walks through these seven verses in this introduction, we realize that this this letter to Romans 
in my opinion, is the greatest demonstration of God's mercy, if for no other reason, that this is the city who killed Jesus. The Romans were the ones that crucified Jesus. And now instead of destroying the Romans, God has a church in Rome and gives them the most, the greatest explanation of what they did. This is mercy. Instead of killing you for killing my son, I'm going to plant a church and then write a letter to you and explain to you in the greatest detail exactly what you did by crucifying Jesus and exactly what that means. That's mercy. This is Rome. That 30 years prior to this letter were celebrating Jesus being crucified. This same city was where the soldiers were ripping his clothes and nailing him to the cross, whipping him, punching him in the face. And this same city has the greatest explanation of what it means that they both killed Jesus and what it means for those who believe in him after his death. He goes on to say this in building confidence in this church, Continuing on in Romans 1, 8 through 15, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you. Always asking in my prayers that if somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I very much want to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by your faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you. But that was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is his introduction. He's building their confidence. Everything that Paul says about himself is connected to what Jesus did and what Jesus has commanded him to do. And like we heard last week, it's largely to make sure that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, which would be the majority, if not everyone in this room, that the salvation of all of us was prophesied thousands of years ago. That our singing, what we just did that Manny led us, the worship of God, our faith in Jesus, the fact that you're here listening to some dude that some of you have never met before talk about God, some of you only know me from short hair Kurt to long hair Kurt. <laughs> He's saying all of this is a direct result prophesied by God thousands of years ago before we existed, before this nation existed. Paul gives this introduction, and then he spends the next 11 chapters explaining to them some of the deepest theology that we have 
available from God. From 1.16 to Romans 11.36, he spends all of those chapters building them up and by proxy us theologically. He talks about the significance of the gospel. It's the power to save. He talks about mankind's fallenness and us and mankind loving the creation but not the creator. We see the ramifications of that in our culture today. He talks about the significance of faith versus the law and that it's not the law of Moses that we would call the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, that saves people. It's Christ. He makes a distinction between having faith like Abraham and those are the people who genuinely belong to God, those who are circumcised in the heart, people like us who read a book that constantly challenges our motives and we keep reading it because our hearts have been cut, who listen to messages. Listen, I crack jokes, do a lot of things, but I don't preach feel-good messages. The goal of the Bible, Hebrews 4 says, look, the word of God is, a, is like a double-edged sword, able to cut bone and marrow. For me, if no one is cut, I didn't preach. I can crack jokes all day. I did stand-up comedy. I'm not doing that. That's not what this is for. I'm going to build you up because that's what the scripture is doing. He spent time developing that. He talked about the difference between Adam and Jesus. He made it clear that in Adam all died. People who, I mean, the Bible, this, this, this book makes it clear there are two kinds of people in the world. You know how y'all, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who like steak and those who don't. Okay. I know what side I'm on, but I don't know where you go. But he makes it clear there are two types of people in this world, those in Adam and those in Christ. Those who've yet to believe and those who've chosen to believe. And he talks about we're chosen to believe. He talks about the responsibility to fight sin in Romans 6 as we understand grace. He says, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Grace doesn't abound more so you can sin more. That's not how it works. He talks about life in the spirit in Romans 8. He talks about God initiating and responsible for salvation in 9 through 11. And then that he talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles, which for us is like, well, duh. But for them, the Jews had only thought that salvation was for them and people who converted to Judaism. So for him to show up and say, actually, your circumcision, physically speaking, men, was not complete. It set in motion a circumcision that would be of the heart that he mentions in Romans 2. So Romans 1 through 16, 11 through 36, he builds them up theologically and beginning at 12, 1 up until our passage last week, Romans 15, 1 through 3, he builds them up relationally. So he lays a foundation theologically. This is what you know to believe. This is what you must believe. And then beginning in Romans 12, here's how you act now in light of what you believe. In light of this theology, he builds them up. He talks about the responsibility of Christian community. How are, and, it, and responsibility is the operative word, not suggestions. But Many of you probably don't think this, but just in case somebody does, let me give you a spoiler alert. God doesn't make suggestions. <laughs> he, does, 
He gives commands. He doesn't make suggestions like that you can figure out, well, I don't know if I like that one or not. I don't. All right, I like this one. We'll do this one. I don't really like this one. Now, many of us don't functionally do that in our minds, but we functionally do that in our actions, right? He says there's a responsibility of Christian community. When you believe in God, when you've been saved, when you understand the gravity of what's happened and that Christ became the sacrifice, the sinless, so that we could sin less. It's a responsibility. He talks about, he talks about the role of government. How do Christians interact in the culture that they live in? Most people have, since the church, there's never really been a Christian nation. Maybe fourth century Ethiopia with King Izana, he made them a Christian nation. That might be it. Most of us wouldn't even be aware of it. So Christians have to live in a government authority that Christ, that God has established in his sovereignty and his control. He builds them up relationally. He talks about how to manage your personal convictions. What happens when you and someone says, man, you shouldn't support Disney movies. And it's like, I'm going to see Thor in a couple minutes. What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you do when you have personal convictions? How do you manage those? He's telling us how to live with one another in unity, even though we may be different in personality. How do you do that? How does the dude from the streets of this area, the DMV, a preacher to people who would never have met me apart from the church? We have to work through things and differences in personality for unity. He covers all of this. He's building them up theologically and relationally and when he gets to the end of this letter, he's doing the same thing in his closing. He's building their confidence in dependence on God, not confident in dependence from God. So he begins by starting with what Christ has done in him, beginning where he, he's ending where he began. Let me make sure you understand this is what I'm doing. He bookends this. I introduce myself is what I'm supposed to do because of Christ. And as I'm saying goodbye to you, I'm reminding you of the same thing. After having read everything, these words hit differently than they did when he first said them, when they first heard them. Here's what he says in verse 14 of Romans 15. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you were also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Spirit. Well, that's a lot of words. Translation. Paul is expressing his confidence in the believers, that there's genuine conversion in their life. I believe, based on what I know, that there's genuine conversion in your life. 
This is why he says they're full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So Paul, as the closing of the letter, is expressing confidence that you all are mature. I'm expressing confidence that you're mature, you have goodness, character, you have knowledge, wisdom, information, and now you're able to instruct one another. Paul is not saying you don't need a pastor. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying that a mature church that knows the word can remind and instruct one another on how to continue on in the faith. This is what he's saying. Essentially, I'm confident that you will grow and will own your maturity because you have knowledge, goodness, and responsibility. There is no church that can thrive without people who have knowledge, goodness, and are able to instruct. Solid rock will not thrive, survive, if these are not in place. The maturity that he's saying here, I could say for those of you that I know in this church, I could say the same thing about you. The question coming out of a pandemic and with the differences and challenges that we have are, are we able to instruct one another? With goodness and with knowledge, not with just emotion and our own personal convictions. So now I have confidence that you're a mature church. You will glorify God. In the middle of him saying this, he makes us, he uses a phrase that is both ironic and instructive. He says this phrase in verse 16. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. And then he says this, God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a phrase. It's easy to read past that phrase, but today we're going to skirt Sam on the brakes because this is not just a phrase. This is a functional identity for all Christians. And it's ironic and instructive. Here's the irony. He says the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering. That's his purpose. That his purpose is that God's purpose is that Gentiles, us, we, would be an acceptable offering. The irony, because Christ is the acceptable offering. That's the whole point of Christ's coming, to be an acceptable offering for God on our behalf. But Paul is saying that we have to be an acceptable offering to God. That's God's purpose. So Christ came to be an acceptable offering, and now you Gentiles, us, have to be an acceptable offering to God as well. It's a functional responsibility. So the question is, do you think of your life that way as a believer? Do you think of your actions, attitudes, thoughts as an acceptable offering to God? This is what he said God's purpose is. 
Here's the irony. Christ is an acceptable offering. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. This is Hebrews in a sentence. The whole book of Hebrews is this. Christ is better than everything. If you want to understand the book of Hebrews in one sentence, Christ is better than everything. Moses, Mechizeldeck, the law, the sacrifices, all of it. Christ is better than everything. Everything that you've experienced historically and in the present, Christ is better than. That's the point of Hebrews. But he says this in Hebrews 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after one sacrifice for his sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies have made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So it's ironic because Christ is the offering, but Paul is saying we have to be an acceptable offering. Well, didn't he make us an acceptable offering? Yeah. So it's ironic, but it's also instructive. Because this language is not used only in Romans 15. In fact, sprinkled throughout the New Testament, this idea that we are an acceptable offering. What we do is a fragrance to the Lord. Listen to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. A, sacrifice, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Look at, listen to Philippians 4, 18. But I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Listen to 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The reality that Christians are supposed to be an acceptable offering to God is thematic in the New Testament. And so it must be thematic in our minds and how we think about everything, whether you're a part of this church, any church, or just a universal church. And if you notice, some of you are really sharp, so you probably caught this. I read it fast so you wouldn't. In every one of the verses I read, and there are plenty of others, the acceptable offering is always connected to the word sacrifice. Sacrifice. There's no acceptable offering that's not sacrificial. It's always connected to sacrifice. It's not connected to comfort and what I'm willing to do. It's connected to what I'm willing to sacrifice. This is countercultural for our day because Christianity today is what I'm comfortable with. What do I feel comfortable doing? From God's perspective, who cares? Our comforts at times are the stop signs of maturity. Because I'm usually comfortable with things that don't cause me to sacrifice. Because sacrifice denotes the possibility of suffering. And if I have a choice in it, I'm not suffering. I've said this before, and I bet you this still stands. 
If I were to ask everyone in here, how, do you, how would you prefer to die? Many of you would say what? In my sleep. <laughs> in my sleep. Everybody wants to die in the least suffering way. But in Christ, it's not how you die that matters. It's how you live. The acceptable offering is a sacrifice. It it requires, I got off at seven. I'm tired. I would like to take a quick nap. Miss church, but instead, I'll take a quick nap, wake up, probably be a little bit groggy, irritated, maybe, and come into church and serve. That's sacrifice. That is the modern moment of an acceptable offering. It's sacrificial. You see, Christ's offering was sacrificial because he gave up his life. He literally died for us. And here's why it was a sacrifice, because he denied himself the pleasure of being acting as fully God. The whole time Jesus is walking around, every second of every moment in Jesus's earthly ministry, he was fully God and could have been like, man, I could just change all of this in a minute. Uh, These people don't even recognize me. I created all of these people. I am sustaining every one of their lives. And they have the audacity to reject me. These Pharisees that are teaching the law wouldn't know how to spell law if I'm not allowing them to do it. And these people are rejecting me. He's fully God at any moment. He could be like, "Ah, I'm tired of you. Some of you aren't old enough to remember a show called I Dream of Jeannie. So I'm talking to those of us who are a little bit older. We remember I Dream of Jeannie. All that moving her nose, blinking. Remember as a kid, I tried that. My teacher gave us this assignment. I was like, only time in my life I wanted to be a witch when I was in serious trouble. He could have changed everything in a moment. Remember him in the garden? The Gethsemane? Father, remove this wrath from me. Not my will, but your will be done. He denied himself the pleasure of acting fully God. And he became an acceptable sacrifice. So our offering must be sacrificial as well. We die to ourselves by denying ourselves the pleasure of the sin that we are accustomed to. We deny ourselves that. Here's the proof. Here's the proof of what I, why I'm saying this. Look at verse 16b again, the second half of it. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified, by the Holy Spirit. That's the proof. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit means I'm being changed. The way I act, think, and what I do is changing by the Holy Spirit 
to glorify God. So this acceptable offering, this sacrifice is God changing me. So what Paul is saying here is that your obedience, my obedience is actually an acceptable offering to God. Every time you resist sin, every time you don't give in, it seems like nothing to us. But to God, he's pleased. It's an acceptable offering because they're being sanctified by the spirit. This is what God is saying. Our obedience is an acceptable offering. Sanctified by the Spirit means you are changing because of the Spirit. You are wanting to glorify God. You start doing things because you want to honor the Lord. You use that type of language. You start thinking like that, like, man, I'm just, <laughs> man, I just want to honor the Lord. I'm only doing this because I'm trying to honor the Lord. He's building up their confidence in dependence on God. But this is an instruction. It's construction. He's building. He continues with that construction in verse 17. He says this. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles. By the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I think the Bible is truly countercultural because people boast all the time about themselves. You ever seen that humble bragging? That's what they call it. Be on Twitter and dudes would be like, wow, man, I'm so amazed that my book has gone uh, number one in 10 different countries and now being translated into this. And I never thought that God would do this. And I'm so grateful to be. You can pick it up. Here's the link. Go get it. I'm not saying it's, it's OK to say that, but sometimes it's like, wow, bro, that's a lot of info. I'm so grateful that. It's easy to boast about what we've accomplished. Sometimes we don't do it out loud. We just do it in private. We do it in silence. We can just compare ourselves to other people. You may not know it, but I definitely think I'm better than you. I'm definitely glad I'm not married to him or her. I'm definitely glad my kids don't act like that. Mm-hmm. The Lord knows. I never stopped coming to church during the pandemic. <laughs> Y'all laugh because a lot of people can't boast about this. But look at what Paul say here. Paul says, look, I will boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. In other words, I'm going to boast about what I've done only because it glorifies God because Paul didn't wake up one day and just be like, you know what? I think I'm going to just preach to all these people I hate. <laughs> I don't like the Gentiles. They're unclean people. But you know what? Today is Tuesday. Let's go to. Paul understands it like, look, 
Everything that I've done, the miraculous signs and wonders, the the desire to to preach, to be an apostle to the Gentiles is only happened because of what Jesus did. And he called me to that. This isn't stuff I do on my own. He understands that even though functionally he's going to these neighborhoods, he's opening his mouth, he's communicating. He understands that all of that is for God's glory because I wouldn't do that apart from the spirit of God urging me to do this. He understands that even though I'm doing ministry, I'm boasting and it, it pertains to God because without Christ, I would have no desire to do this ministry or the power to do it. And guess what? It's the same for you and I. Let's be honest for a second at Sunday's church. There's nothing cool about Christianity. There's nothing like, you're a Christian? Yo, that's what's up. (laughs) Nobody's saying that. There's nothing cool about what we believe. There's nothing like, who reads 2 Timothy 3.12 and it's like, yo, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I've never seen that on a (laughs) t-shirt. I've never seen that on a bumper sticker. There's nothing awesome about trying to be godly from the world's perspective. There's nothing cool about it. People think being a pastor is cool. Mm, It's not. It's not. Even if everything was sweet like this, we still have to give an account to God. And if James 3 is right, which I believe he is, we're going to be judged with a stricter judgment. I was just with some pastors this past week and heard their stories and different challenges they faced. And one dude was like, you know, pastors have a five-year lifespan. I was like, wow, that's like about as long as a running back in the NFL. There's nothing cool about this. It's hard. There's nothing cool about being a Christian. There's nothing cool about telling other people about Jesus because you love them and them telling you you hate me for saying that. There's nothing about this. There's nothing cool about reading the Bible. There's nothing cool about praying and hoping that what you're asking God, he's going to give you, that it's his will. There's nothing cool about asking for something and not getting it and being disappointed. There's nothing about Christianity that you would do unless the spirit of God was in you doing it. Nothing. There's nothing about this life that is amazing unless the spirit has grabbed a hold of you and you recognize an eternal reality that is much greater than the one we live in right now. So Paul can boast about it because it pertains to God. But guess what? So can you. Because you wouldn't do any of this stuff. You wouldn't tolerate me. You wouldn't lead a D group. You wouldn't serve in children's ministry. You wouldn't give to this church. You wouldn't do nothing unless the spirit of God was in you. And you know how how I know it's to be true? Because there are probably people in this room who are not doing what you were doing because the spirit of God doesn't motivate them to do it. They come here for other reasons and don't even listen. On their phones, don't care. I'm not offended. 
I speak to the people that do. And when I stand before God and give an account, that's what matters. There's nothing cool about this life. There's nothing cool about what Paul was doing. Maybe the miraculous signs and wonders, maybe that part. I mean, if you're grabbing snakes and they bite you, you just shake it off. And everybody's like, fam, you, you, are, you need some aspirin or something? Like your arm isn't swelling up? You're bringing people back from the dead. That, that part is cool, the signs and wonders part. Many of us don't have that. My signs and wonders are sermons. Sorry. <laughs> this is Paul's sacrificial offering. He says, I went from Jerusalem to Illyricum. In their day and age, that's like the other side of like the world to them from where they were. That's like, oh, I think it's past Spain. And to them, that was the end of the world for them. So when Paul in Romans 1 says, your faith has gone out to the whole world, he means all the world to them, which extends all the way to Illyricum. So it would be like D.C. all the way to New York City or maybe Boston. It's like, man, we've gone. I'm preaching the gospel all the way over here. And I'm only telling you this because it's motivated by faith in Christ. So everything that Paul has written in this letter for Christians to do is motivated by faith in Christ. And then he gets to verse 21. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He says this. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. He quotes a powerful verse in Isaiah 52. But it becomes more powerful. One thing that you might not know is when, when they quote the Old Testament, they use the, they're using the verses, but they know that the Jews at least will have more knowledge and understand the context of that verse. So like when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22. The Jews who know that understand that he's referencing the whole psalm, which is a righteous man who was suffering, who, who thought that God was punishing him. But in the end, God wasn't. He's drawing attention to that reality. Well, he's doing the same in this verse. Yes, he's taking a part of it that those who were told about him will see. We're not told talking about Gentiles. Gentiles were not given the law of God. They had no idea Messiah was coming. These people, we weren't told anything. He said, those who have not heard will understand. But if you go back and look at the context of Isaiah 53, look at the context in which that happens. He says this in verse 13. See, my servant, this is Isaiah prophesying about what will happen to Jesus. He says, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Then listen to this. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will not see what had not been for. They will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. You see, how do they see? And understand. 
It was because of this phrase. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. This is a description of the crucifixion. His appearance was so disfigured. And his form did not resemble a human being. I watched The Passion of the Christ for the first time with my kids this year. I wanted to wait for them to see it. And we all watched it on Easter weekend, Easter Sunday, after church. I wanted them to see it. It was brutal. It's the kind of movie you only watch once. Foolish enough to watch it twice. Anything more than that, you need help. It's brutal. And I know I'm watching an actor. I know I'm watching. I know this is amazing acting, amazing makeup, great cinematography. I get it. I know that that's not Jesus. But it helps me at least visualize this verse. That his appearance was so disfigured that he didn't look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. You know why? So that those would see who had not been told Gentiles. This is why we always preach the gospel and why we'll never move away from the gospel. Why we will constantly remind ourselves of the gospel and fight growing over familiar with the gospel because he was, didn't even look like a man. His body didn't resemble a human being. He was beaten so badly so that you and I could sing freely so that we would have hope. This is not a game. Paul is acknowledging that the Gentiles, those of us who have come to believe Jesus, everyone in this room, the cost of it was a disfiguration of Jesus, receiving the full wrath of God that was so intense that even Pilate was like, wow, he's dead already? Because what Jesus experienced on the cross for you and I was way different than what the thief on his left and right experienced. They only dealt with physical pain. He was dealing with an eternal pain. An anger from the Father that he's only been with and known all this time. I can't articulate that in a way that it'll make sense but I trust the spirit to quicken the hearts of those who genuinely believe.
Paul goes on to just describe that he is going to, in verses 22 through 28, he goes on to describe essentially that he's going to take the money that the Gentile church has given and take it to the Israel Christians who are poor, and that that was an acceptable offering. He says, look, you've benefited from the Jewish salvation. So it's only right that you contribute financially to them when they're hurting. And then he closes with this in verses 29 through 33. And I thought, wow, what a profound statement. He says this in verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. Coming from Paul, what a profound request. Remember, this is Paul who just said that I've done all this work, miraculous signs and wonders, all these things that God has let me do. So Paul has already proven his confidence in the Lord. He's building up their confidence in the Lord. And then in closing, he asks for prayer. And two things happen. One, you see that confidence in the Lord, even when doing the work of the Lord, is still dependent on the Lord. Paul's saying, look, pray for me that these things happen. Paul's not going to like, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to save them. I'm going to, I'm going to save these folks. I'm going to hit Spain. <laughs> and then swing back around and, and come holler at y'all. Mm-mm. He's saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Strive with me in prayers. And here are his requests. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers, that my ministry would be acceptable to the saints. Oh, man, if I have more time, we'd unpack that statement. Acceptable to the saints. That means you got people who are Christians, saints, that may disagree with how you're doing ministry. They may disagree with your emphasis, your theological bent. They may disagree with the fact that you reached out to so many Gentiles. He said, I hope that I'll be acceptable to the saints. Even Paul is recognizing that even among believers, there might be some things that they don't agree with that he's doing. And he says, may I come to you with joy and be refreshed. Because he's aware of the possibility of it not being joyful and not being refreshing. And when you read that, you know what you realize? Is that Paul doesn't presume that because what he's doing for the Lord, doing for the Lord, will be successful without suffering. He doesn't presume that. He doesn't think because I'm a pastor, a Christian, I'm doing ministry. He doesn't think that because I'm doing the will of God, the work of God, as clearly described to me by Jesus himself, he does not think that it's going to be successful in the ways that we think and that it's going to be without suffering. 
He understands that even though this is for God, it's going to hurt. And so I'm praying to you to help me get through that because I may be opposed. He understands God's sovereignty. He spent the whole book explaining the power of God, how God is in control, but he doesn't in any way, shape, or form think that his knowledge, his obedience, or any of it removes him from suffering. This is countercultural to the gospel in American evangelicalism. We think when it's for God, it should be no problem. If I'm obeying God, what's the problem? Where's the blessings? <laughs> if I've raised my children, why aren't they like this? Why don't we do things like that? I'm praying and fasting. Why isn't this changing? Paul at least understands, hey, this is clearly for the Lord. But success is not measured by the lack of opposition. Success is measured by the trust of God in opposition. He didn't say, look, pray these things or else I ain't going to make it. He just said, pray they don't happen, but I'm going to come see y'all one way or the other. As we are, for those of us that are going to be a part of Solid Rock 3.0s, we're moving forward. The challenges and the different logistics and all the different things that we're talking about from the building to the structure of different things, they're going to be things that are challenging. You may not like everything. It doesn't mean it's going to come without any sacrifice or suffering. That's, that's, a, that's a gospel that is not biblical. And it's a gospel that many Christians are fighting each other over. Keep your non-suffering gospel away from me. Because we'll get that when we get to eternity. Amen. And if Paul can say, who did way more than any of us, that suffering is not opposed to biblical success, then I stand in the same lane. And if we experience some challenges, some suffering, whether unbelievers don't like us, if saints don't think we're, it's acceptable, we accept it because we're trying to glorify God. Amen. Success. Success without suffering is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And then confidence in the Lord is being dependent on the Lord. What a crazy way to end this chapter. I am grateful and I'm affected by the disfiguration of the Lord so that we could be an acceptable offering. So as believers in Jesus, true believers, those of you who that pertains to in this room or watching online, your obedience, my obedience, the sacrifices, even if there's suffering, opposition from unbelievers, some challenges from the believers, it's all a part of the way we honor the Lord. And it's biblical to accept it 
and to in some ways prepare for it through prayer. So let's do that now in closing. Father, none of us, most of us in our right minds aren't asking for suffering. But we understand that it is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And so, Lord, I'm not asking for opposition from unbelievers. I'm not asking that what we do is not acceptable to the saints. I'm just asking that my acceptable offering and the acceptable offering of this church be sacrificial. And that as we're rethinking, retooling, rebranding, reposturing ourselves for a new season in our church, may we be a church that is telling unbelievers about Jesus. May we be a church that is seeing our obedience, our reading, our praying, our giving, our serving as a sacrificial, acceptable offering. May we think of our lives in terms of sacrifice and not just for the things that we love, like our children or our close friends, but but as a way of life. For Paul doesn't know this church fully. We know that in Acts 16, he's going, in Romans 16, he's going to give what we would call a bunch of shout outs. But in reality, he's sacrificing because he loves you. And that helps him love people who he's never met. Help us to think of ourselves sacrificially and not comfortably. And it's not that we can't be comfortable, but may not be, may that not be the the primary way we view what we're doing. Because it's not the way you viewed what you did. And it's not what you put in our word for us to view ourselves as. Lord, if I've said anything or misconstrued anything, then I pray that you would place it on the heart of every member of this church to go back and study. Reread this passage. Read it. Get a commentary. Find a better preacher who will explain it better. If I've said anything wrong, Lord, forgive me. I meant no intent. You know my weaknesses. You know how I'm made. But Lord, whatever I said that was true, may it not be agreed upon in the seat, but be forgotten in the parking lot. We're so distracted by the world that we live in that we agree with something and forget what that something was a couple days later, Lord. I pray that you would place it on the heart of every genuine believer in this room that being an acceptable offering is connected to sacrificing and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That we see our obedience as a responsibility and our relation to one another as a responsibility. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not believe, they've yet to place their faith in you. 
Lord, first of all, Lord, thank you for bringing them here or having them watch online. It is not an easy thing or a cool thing to be a Christian today. Whether you've grown up in the church and you're struggling with it or you're wrestling with life and looking into Christianity, it's not easy. And you never promise that believing in you will change all our circumstances, but you do promise that our identities can change and that if we persevere in you to the end, that it will be well worth it. So while we are competing with everything and the people are competing with all their concerns and worries and doubts and judgments, Father, I pray that you would have mercy on them, that you would soften their hearts to believe that, Jesus, you were disfigured, you were beaten, you were crucified so that they could see that you love them, that you died on the cross to bring them in because they can't do it on their own. You didn't send Jesus as one way. You sent him because he's the only way. And I pray that you would open their hearts to believe that for your glory and their good. In your name we pray.